0: Hello, my name's Jamie McKinley and welcome to episode 106 of Just Get A Real Job podcast. Thank you very much for listening and welcome back. We have a real treat for you this week as we are joined by the legendary Mervin Stutter. Now mervin has been working in show business since 1974. So he's nearly been working in show business for 50 years, which is just quite incredible. And speaking to him and sort of hearing how passionate he is and the amount of amazing things he's done in the creative industries for so long, it was just such a joy to speak to someone like that. And he had such passion still. And... It was just one of those conversations that will definitely stick with me and it was such a joy to have. We had some minor technical issues at the start, just Zoom being Zoom, but we got past it very quickly. And it was also really nice because this was Mervyn's first ever podcast he'd done. Obviously, being on the radio, he's had two hit sitcoms on the radio in the 90s and the early 2000s, but it it was the first podcast he's done which felt quite nice as well. But it's quite a special year for Mervyn because he's returning to the Fringe with his annual showcase, the Pick of the Fringe For the 30th anniversary So it's amazing how long this show's been running And it's amazing how you sort of celebrated this show is as well And Mervyn will talk about it more in this episode So I won't, I won't go into it too much But there's a link to that show in the show notes So if you're at the Fringe this year Be sure to go and check out Mervyn's pick of the fringe show Yeah, it was just a, a brilliant conversation I'm sure you're going to really enjoy it Mervyn's had quite a career And yeah, it was great to sort of sit for an hour And, and reminisce and talk about it Also, before we go into today's episode I just want to quickly acknowledge one amazing weekend for cinema so good to see Barbie and Oppenheimer doing so well at the box office And just to see people going to the cinema and making it such an event I don't know, feels like it's been a long time since that sort of happened mm-hmm. Definitely not since Covid anyway, not in my experiences anyway But I just felt like I couldn't host an arts podcast and not mention that Just an amazing thing Anyway, I hope you enjoy this week's episode of Just Get A Real Job With the legendary Mervyn Stutter Enjoy mm-hmm. Mervyn, welcome to Just Get Real Joe. It's lovely to speak to you today. I know we've had some technical issues. You can't hear me amazingly well. No, so I can't. Well, power through. I really appreciate it. But it's great to have you on the podcast. You've been doing this a long time. So you're a great person for us to have on. You've you having an incredible career, lots of different stuff. But do you want to sort of start just by introducing a little bit about yourself? So, just for the listeners' sake.
1: Well, where should we start? I started in show business if you like in 1974 you probably heard about 1974 in your history lessons at school Jamie (laughs) Um, it was just after the 60s it was a good time Ah, yeah yeah yeah. if only we could bring them back I mean what how come we can't replicate that there was plenty of money we had a good time anyway it's 1974 I started there was loads of work around then because we had a Labour government we had Jenny Lee as Mm. a culture minister, Minister of the Arts. And there were companies opening up all over in Community Street, all sorts of low-level but community-based companies, theatre and education companies, wonderful. And so you could get work. And I left college and went into theatre straight away, and started down on the south coast in a company we called the Song and Dance Company, and then I moved on and into repertory and God knows what. And, you know, then you start branching out into bits of TV. I worked up in Manchester and there's Granada Television and mm-hmm. all the rest of it. So then I did theatre for till about the mid-80s, although I still do theatre. I still radio acting. You still do it. But actually, continuously, I was working in theatre from 74 into the 80s. And then there was the alternative comedy scene. And i have been writing songs anyway for the radio and... I didn't fit into the, you know, the really noisy clubs. Songs don't. So I did the more cabaret-based clubs. And then I went up to Edinburgh in 1987 for the first mm. ever solo show, Topical Songs. And I did all right. And I thought, why am I doing okay? I'm getting actually, people said, oh, you know, it'll be a bit iffy first time. But I have pulled in some good audiences and it dawned on me that my, most of the audience probably were radio 4 listeners and i'd been writing songs and performing on radio 4 and i'd also been and i forget to say this jamie and i shouldn't really the first ever british daytime television show was bbc tv show Mm -hmm. called open air Mm -hmm. and it was the in the early 80s and it was the period when the topical song being part of programming was very popular. People who know that's life with yeah, of course. It was always a, somebody singing a song each week, so it was it was kind of a thing you did. And I was the bloke who, who did the songs. So the first ever daytime TV show. Hey, now you know you're privileged talking to me now, aren't you? Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> so did that, and then I got good, decent audiences. And and then five years later, people have been saying to me, oh, "What's any good? You seen anything any good?" And I started a pick of the fringe, only then I called it obviously Seen Anything Good. Like, that good. was the start of the showcase. Yeah. yeah. And then that's, you know, then the rest is sort of a fringe history. When you started Seen
0: Anything Good, as you called it then, or Pick of the Fringe, did, yeah. you, did you expect to be doing it like 30 years on? Like, no, that's, that's that, amazing. of course not. It's
1: amazing. <laughs> it was just people had said, oh, look, you know, we basically, they were saying we need a hand because the fringe was getting bigger. I mean, God's sakes, it's like 3,500 odd shows now. It's twice as large. I don't know, I'm guessing at that, but it's huge now compared to then. But people were still going, where's the good stuff then? So they needed a guide. And no one had done the showcase that I did, which was to put on a bit of everything, a comprehensive Mm -hmm. look every day. So you'd have circus, music, cabaret, comedian, theatre. And then the next day you'd have another spread maybe not the same genres but at least a spread to give people a, a good look at the fringe it was seven shows in 90 minutes that's how we did it but no one had done it before and so it's a bit of a risk and and, and but that's what you did it, you, you, mm-hmm. you were young and foolish and you thought yes <laughs> we'll do that and uh, it worked out well i always think it's a bit like a marriage you start you don't expect it to last 30 years but <laughs> hey get shot. <laughs> my silver wedding? No, what is it? I don't know. Anyway, yeah. Incredible. We that We just carried yeah. on doing it because it was successful. That's Man. why you carry on doing something, because it's successful.
0: Right, it's, it's incredible. Like, I mean, we'll, we'll get into this year's showcase yeah. and all the stuff you got planned as we go on. But I like to sort of get my guests to start off with. I'm, I'm going to get you to cash your mind back. But what was your sort of earliest creative memory? Do you remember as a youngster, what was the first
1: big creative thing you did? I think, well... I mean, it sounds silly, but our school, primary school, did on a Friday afternoon, as a relief, I suppose, from the more academic-y stuff, they had drama, uh, which basically means a load of kids prattling about. You know, most of us didn't have a clue. We just got up and improvised silliness until she said stop. I mean, there were one or two people who were very clever. There's a an old friend of mine from that school who's quite famous in the film world called David McGillivray and he directed and he cast kids and he had props and scenery the the whole thing was a a huge show he built it through the week ready for Friday and then boom he did I mean good for David you know it was great but mostly it was that and I was doing piano lessons and I hated it because it was all the formal stuff and then I got a guitar at the age of 11 got a few chords on them about mid-teens you start Writing your own dreadfully turgid, Mm -hmm. angst ridden teenage songs and went into folk clubs, the kindliest audiences in the world who indulged you as you and sat quietly by while you performed these awful songs. But you know, you wrote and performed, and then you get better at it, of course. And so, those were the earliest ones. I mean, in terms of creativity, but there was great acting at school, which I can tell you about. I mean, just and I was just thinking about this for other. The publications I'm I'm writing for right now to do with the thirtieth, I mean phenomenal experience. But you know, we we'll maybe get to that what what, what happened there. Yeah, no, performance based, you know, which is creative, yeah. but it was more performance based. Yeah. Well, just before we sort of go into that, this this ties into the same question,
0: but like. I always ask. There's one of my favorite questions as well because it's so important. But like, how has where you're from
1: influenced <laughs> you as a creative? I mean, where are you from? Actually, I, 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 I don't. Know. <laughs> it influenced me where I was, where I was born and brought up. My parents didn't move. I did for the 22 years of my life in the same house. <laughs> And it influenced me in the sense that I couldn't wait to get out. It's a very common answer, that <laughs> screaming that it was so, it was like living in cotton wool. You didn't go into your neighbors, you might dress them over the fence, but you kept yourself to yourself and worried about what other people thought. And I looked out of my window and there was a, a little cul de sac opposite us. And there was a family there that the, um, the snooty people in my road looked down on. Hmm. Oh, yes, them, you know. I won't name them, but, oh, them. And they had a daughter, and she must have been 20s, early 20s. And she used to, you know, she wore wonderful young girl clothes, young lady clothes, and she would swing out with her handbag on a long strap and walk up the street. Uh, If you've ever seen the film Georgie Girl from the 60s, she had that swinging (laughs) along the street with gay abandon, and she was just a young thing, She's an actress, you know, they said. She's an actress. I said, is she? Oh, that looks good. That looks quite freeing and fun. I like the look of that, you know. And I was desperate to be in. Somebody asked the question, what would? What was the young Merv into? What did he want to do? He only wanted to do one thing. climb on the stage and entertain people. Have a, that's the only thing I've ever wanted to do. But I couldn't wait to get out. There was a poet, very famous p- British poet, Stevie Smith. And she lived up the road. Wow. Ah. Glenda Jackson played her in the film. And so I was through that film, I discovered she was in the street, you know, she was across the main road. There was Fox Lane. She was up in one of the roads off the side. So she was just up the road. All my life, I think she was up there. Did anyone tell me that one of the Britain's favorite poets is up? No, we don't mention that sort of thing. And she wrote a poem, and it was a phrase that, you know, screamed at me. Uh, it, it was exactly how I felt. Her phrase, the title of one of her poems was Not Waving, But Drowning. And I thought, <laughs> yeah, I get that. But I only I only discovered this after I left and got into yeah. theatre and mixed with literary folk, you know. Well, where was it, though? Where, where was the inn? <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> well, the blind to... place. I'm dying it to was, know. It was, at, it was called Palmer's Green, and it was in North London, near Enfield oh, yeah. and Southgate and mm-hmm. near Tottenham. And uh, you were obliged in, in where I lived to uh, school to make a decision between Arsenal and Spurs. And at that time, luckily, I made the right decision and Spurs, and because we won the double in the sixties. But anyway. <laughs> It isn't, it isn't looking so great right now but uh, well, listen Ange, Ange Posticoglu is an amazing manager I
0: think he'll do very well for Spurs oh
1: do you think yeah okay.
0: I'm not I'm not a Celtic fan but I've, I've watched them a lot being in Scotland and being living in Glasgow etc And he okay. is an, an amazing manager uh, just just to go off topic for a second I mean sorry. people might listen to this in two years time and go what was Jamie talking about but I, I think he's a great manager
1: no that's he? great because we've got him so we've got to yeah. we've got to trust him and we should never got rid of Positino but anyway okay Chelsea have now <laughs> got him I mean it's just, just absolutely appalling. <laughs> Daniel Levy. Yeah. yeah, we'll leave him alone. Right. Yeah. Oh, but but, but North
0: not London. No, of course. Well, would you want to quickly go into that performance thing you were talking about? How before in the question before I asked you about like you were talking about it was creative, but you were you're sort of doing these amazing performances at school.
1: Yes, the school was a very rigid, let's be a public school kind of grammar school. I mean, when mm. I went to the old school building at the age of 11, The prefect's room had leather armchairs and a log fire. I mean, for God's sake. Anyway, then we moved to a a modern 60s building's about uh, 20 minutes, half an hour bus ride, which was, again, was freeing to to take a bus away. And you had all this time. Oh, I'm sorry I'm late. I missed the bus home. Great excuse, you know, Hmm. because in the other one I used to walk. And into this modern 60s building walked Alec Davison, who went on to be the first director of the Cockpit Theatre London, which is a youth theatre, and he turned up and he was a, he looked, we thought he was ancient because he was bald, but he was 23. Mm. And he was the most exciting man. He immediately resurrected the school play, but in an exciting way, we did the rivals. They did the rivals to start with. I was about 13. And then they did he did the Bacchae by Euripides, which is all about women losing it through drink, drugs and hysteria on the mountainside under the influence of Dionysus and ripping lions and stags to pieces with their bare hands. So you had to have these kind of orgasmic women, but it worked well. And the powers that be loved it. And then the, the big one was he he decided to go to Germany. It was I was 16, so 48, 64, 1964 to go to Germany. Bavaria, in fact, and tour Bavaria with the Merry Wives of Windsor. The Lustige Weib von Windsor. And he took over a mile of scaffolding and flats that created half the globe. He had a cast of actors, obviously. He had a cast of front of house orange sellers, tumblers, jugglers, all the people who couldn't really act but wanted to be part of it. He, he included so many kids and changed so many kids' lives just by being an orange seller. They, they, they the, the confidence to get up and confront an audience and talk to them and, you know, pretend to sell oranges or whatever. And then that crew, there was the next night was the backstage and the backstage became front. And we all went to Germany and toured and it was phenomenal I mean there was a lot of opposition because we'd only just sort of won the war but Alex's view was as a Quaker as well that uh, we should you know behave peacefully and and build bonds of youth to youth you know who had nothing to do with it and he was perfectly right but the Lord Chamberlain came down Jamie i know uh the lord chamberlain arrived and he blessed us with his title the lord chamberlain's men this bunch of school kids and no but no theater company since shakespeare's day were had been and shakespeare's company was called the lord chamberlain's men we were the second company oh now was that a confirming experience of where you wanted to be in life you know brilliant
0: that was amazing. And then obviously yeah, it just went on. Before I sort of go on to talk about the rest of, you know, the, how the start of your career and sort of the television stuff, the radio stuff and the theatre stuff, do you have like a favourite word or phrase from North London where you're from? Is there like a word or, I mean, you'd kind of given that phrase earlier, Was it, is it that poem or is there another it one? It was,
1: not yeah. waving but drowning, yes. Great. That's my favourite, yeah, i so. It's but, exactly but, how I felt yeah. and to escape was great and perfect answer very liberating and to meet people who thought the same as you i mean i love a group of actors i love theater companies i work Mm. a lot solo as well these days but when you're a part of a company putting on a thing there is such a a joint project feeling such a lovely we're all in this together and we're going to make it work i mean the lovely thing about theater is it's a can-do situation if a problem happens hey we just we deal with it and we get it on I mean, obviously, the classic is "the show must go on," but essentially, that's that's the mindset. You have yeah. to, you know.
0: No, there's so there's so much I could ask about that time as well. And like you sort of touched on this at the start about how it was almost in a way there was more money and more resources available because yeah. there was a the Labour government and stuff. But do you think it was easier to sort of have a career
1: in in the arts back then? Absolutely, than it is now? absolutely. I mean, unfortunately, everything changed when Thatcher came in because she was a mm. scientist, and it's true of this last 13 years. There's something about the Conservative Party that doesn't like the arts. No, They just think you should have maths and science. They don't think there should be music. Music was cut out of schools, and they became peripatetic teachers who wandered about and came into a school and then disappeared. So the stock of instruments, which we had in my school when I was growing, and the stock of instruments in the music cupboard, you know, and you could take one out under supervision and try it. That stopped you. But you, if you wanted an instrument, your parents had to pay for it. And yeah. so you had to make a choice somewhere in your private life, pay for it. Then in school, somebody might arrive who understood the tuba as opposed to the violin. You'd be lucky, you know, yeah. and I, I just think it is the most and drama, of course, was mm. not um, encouraged. It is the most absurd situation. If I did a lot of seminars, in the late 80s, when there was a lot of money swilling around in business, I did a lot of seminars and conferences. I was hired in to make them more entertaining. And I watched young men and women, or middle-aged men and women, on stage, while we were sort of looking at how to do things, doing their presentations. And I thought, God, you've got no skills. No yeah. skills. I mean, the worst thing was they throw up a PowerPoint slide behind them with three points on, then they turn around and go... Uh, yeah and a b c and it's that you're looking at my back of my bloody head don't you know what's on your own slide you know talk with some interest and passion to the audience don't learn it you know it you work for the industry so the ability to stand on stage and talk to somebody if they'd done drama at school and all those confidence or music or dance or whatever Mm. those confidence were built up it's really good for the economy. Yeah, that, which is the ironic part because
0: even today, it's actually quite well timed this conversation. Because today, Sunak's done this horrible thing about low value degrees and basically capping low value degrees, and it's like it's basically saying that like unless you're from a privileged background, then you shouldn't really have access to the arts. Effectively, that's what they're trying to say. Because you know, I did I did a theatre and film course. It, it gave me access to that world and that space, which I wouldn't have had otherwise. And again, as you're saying, public speaking—they teach that at Eton. You Know that Eaton has like what four or five theaters or something. Like do you know what I mean there's a reason that because for that, but they don't, you know, I don't understand why they wouldn't want that to benefit the general population. It's it's absurd. And of course
1: they specialize in debating. You go to the Oxford yeah. Union debates, and so you get you get some awful creature called mm. Boris Johnson, whose only skill is to entertain by talking. And so winning at the dispatch box as prime minister was the only thing that mattered to him, the witty put down. Brilliant for the Oxford Union, fabulous Mm. for debating society, well done, hurrah, hurrah, absolutely useless politically and leading a country. But that's what they specialise in. They can have those things. The ordinary schools, just drama, for God's sake, drama, music. The arts are fundamental to rounding off a personality and creating a society of lovely human beings. Sounds a bit wishy-washy, doesn't it? But it's bloody true. I agree. I
0: agree. And this, will, you know, this podcast is very much embodies that. And, you know, I mean, the whole reason this podcast was started, the whole just get a real job thing, we're ta- um, it's a mockery of the this attitude, like, you know, why would you, you know, do maths and go and get a real job? Like that, that's the sort of attitude these people have. So I just think it's I don't think I agree. I don't think it builds a good society. And a, you know, I think the arts are good for the economy. Theater and film no. and TV bring in a lot of money.
1: And um, that's not to say you shouldn't encourage the sciences no. as well. I mean, the lovely thing is that creativity is the same in the arts and the science. It's what's the problem? Yeah. That's convergent thinking. What possible solutions? Divergent thinking. Then you make a decision, and then you focus again, convergent thinking, on pushing that solution through to the nth degree. Creativity is being open to other ideas. So the yeah. really top scientists are the creative ones. So we're lucky to have them. But imagine if we could encourage all of them, you know. I know, it'd be
0: amazing. And politicians, you know, if they were a bit more open-minded as well, we might get more, we might get more done. Well, time. but
1: Sunak says, oh, we must do eight, the maths till you're 18. <laughs> what, and turn out like you, Rishi. Yeah. Yeah, man. I don't think so. It's not the model I'm after anyway. <laughs> oh. well, so sort of to, to bring it back to you. Man, yes.
0: What, what did you do after school then? What was your next steps? Did you go to university? Did you study a creative course? Did you, how did it all start for you? No,
1: I. there was some family things. And my mother died when I was 22. And and so it was a question of what, you know, what about my dad? And I looked after him for a bit. And so I went to a college nearby so I could look after him. And, and I went to teach training college. Which actually I'm very pleased about because I did. I, I worked with the, that teacher Alec, who had now left the school and was running the Cockpit Theatre. I'm doing his first youth theatre thing, and so he wanted a local youth talent, and he hadn't turned up enough talent. So he said, "Could I come and play one of the comedy leads in a Aristophanes? I think it was who wrote sort of comedies based on the serious Greek dramas?" And then obviously the back again appeared, and so I played Dionysus in that, uh, which is this kind of uh, alluring God. Well, you can see why I played an alluring God, can't you? And I did these two performances. And so when I went to the teacher training college, there were a number of people there who had seen those performances. So I got off to a bit of a flyer at the college and did loads of plays. And so that was brilliant. And also I liked all the ologies. You see, at my school, the boys had to drop all the arts. So the history went, biology went. And you had to, and when you got to the sixth form, there was two boys in the arts, mm-hmm. the rest were girls because you know girls won't do much so took off will have babies, and the the boys had only two uh, were in the science, and there were two women, two young girls, so that was this absurd sexual split, and they didn't do any subjects that interest in me. But when I got to teach training, I did all, all theologies, psychology, sociology, philosophy. Mm-hmm. What's the common thread? They're all about people. <laughs> and guess what? You know, what's the job we all do? We're about people. 100%. So I, I enjoyed it enormously. Got a degree, Jamie. I oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> There's a surprise for you. <laughs> Not at all. And sort
0: of from there then, I take it because you're so linked to theater, was that when a lot of your early stuff working in theater and yeah. you know, I went straight
1: out of college in the June. I went straight into a job in the September and then moved on up into Coventry, then up to the Duke's Playhouse in Lancaster, where I've done a fair bit of work over the years, then into Manchester again, when I've done a fair bit of work at the library theatre there and TV. Yeah, I was in a soap. Well, so, yeah, yeah, I read it, was, uh, you know, it didn't last long. Yeah, had links to East End as well, though, didn't you? I uh, no, I did one episode of East don't <laughs> think, don't mention it. <laughs> I wore loads of makeup as a Morris man, you know, and, mm. and the only speaking Morris man in the troupe. It had to be an actor. And then I went out in the street and a few weeks later, people going, Oh, we saw you on the town. I thought I've done so much work in this, that, and the other. And all in one episode bouncing around with bells on your legs. And oh well, yeah, he's been in East End. Anyway, yeah. So I did a soap, but that was down in the here nor there. The parties were great. Yeah. Garada parties with the Corrie Street actors. Oh yes. Yeah, so that was all good. And I just did lots and lots of theatre, then crept down to London after well, my father died then. So I got I had lost both parents by 30. Oh, and I came you. down to London and started working solo more. You know, yeah and was that the sort of around the
0: same time you were doing the music stuff on the telly as well?
1: Yes the open air appeared I don't know actually I came down got a house and sold out what I'd bought in Lancaster and came down and then went off I was hardly in the house I didn't I went up to Nottingham and Manchester and I just kept working away f- from this house but went, one time when I came back I was running around the, the circuit in London I met someone who's said oh no they're doing this this new open air on them, the first daytime television they want a songsmith, submit some songs so i submitted some songs and got the job you know amazing but that was great yeah it was good but it all seemed to feed in i was doing a theater show and i was working with esther hannigan a lovely lovely lady i shared digs with her brother actually when i was at college so that was a nice coincidence and she said she played amazing violin her husband on guitar and they were called some like it hot and they were hugely popular around london and in edinburgh she had come up to edinburgh she said you, you'll have a ball so i went up to edinburgh got myself a gig at the Pleasants, and and on we went you know they all started yeah
0: Hello, it's JV here. You may have heard this advert several times before, but if not, this is basically just me taking a minute to remind you guys ...that if you're enjoying the podcast, there are a number of things you can do to help us keep growing. Now, as many of you might be aware, the podcasting landscape is incredibly saturated and, I mean, there's lots of podcasts, we all love podcasts... ...but it's very difficult for independent podcasts like us to sometimes break through and to be noticed. So doing things like sharing us on social media, word of mouth and just telling friends and family to listen or even leaving us a little five-star review on places like Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts go so far in helping us to keep growing. Me and Elliot adore this podcast. We love making this podcast. So if you're able to help in any way by doing something like that, we'd be incredibly grateful, not just for our podcast, but if you love any independent podcasts, please try and give them a wee share or give them a review because it, it goes so far. Another thing you can do if you enjoy the podcast as well, and we appreciate that this is a very difficult time, but if you're enjoying this podcast and you want to help us, you can donate as little or as much as you like to our Patreon page and you can do that by going to patreon.com slash justgetarealjob or you can click the link in the show notes. Anything you can afford, we are very grateful for. Thank you for your continued support and I hope you enjoy the rest of today's episode. Just just to quickly roll back, but we'll, we'll talk about Edinburgh because I mean there's lots to talk about of Edinburgh, especially. And I know it's coming up and we want to plug the, the 30th anniversary exactly. Yeah. But just to sort of wind back on, like what was it you exactly? did you know roughly what role in the creative industries you wanted to do back then? Or was that were you what just role were in, the- in the creative industries? Were you quite open-minded then? Were you did you just yeah. sort of just love
1: all of it, the multifaceted nature of it? Well, when I joined theatre, my first theater show, I thought Rather stupidly, the, the fact that I could sing and perform and write. But I certainly thought acting and singing, well, everyone does that, don't they? Well, no, they don't. So I sang really rather well back then. And I had a lot of instruments. I performed in an Irish folk band in the when I was in Coventry. And I learned whistle and banjo and mandolin. And so I had a lot of instruments. And that proved to be extremely useful in lots of different shows. I mean, I did a show at Stratford East, the Joan Littlewood Theatre, you know, where oh, what a lovely war, and all those were done. And I was in the band for the pantomime. And I the, the violin is exactly the same as the mandolin, except your fingers stretch. You know, when you're playing here, they're very tight. And then you put them up here, they've gone along. So you have to be very careful. But I used to do chick it and chick it and chick it and it for various songs and after one show a man who was running the tricycle theater in London came up and said oh great he said Mervyn I didn't realize you played violin we need a violinist I said I'm not a violinist I just do (laughs) because I can and it's easy so there's lots of things like that where you can just do a little bit of something because you are musical Mm. and know how to get something out of another instrument I had to play the drums in one show had no (laughs) idea how to play the drums (laughs) <laughs> so <laughs> you know you do and so because you have a musical facility and, you, and I also used to write songs for theatre and the actors liked the songs I wrote because I had always took trouble to make the lyrics part of how the story developed and they liked singing you know good lyrics really mm. it wasn't a pause while somebody just does no it was let moved the thing forward all the time yeah. So yeah, I enjoyed that writing songs for theaters. Wonderful. In comes a choreographer and they move it about, and then there's a whole group. then somebody comes in and MDs the harmonies and the and the band, and you're going, Oh, I wrote this on a guitar in my living room. That's amazing. I imagine you were doing
0: all three things. You were doing radio stuff, TV stuff, and theater
1: all sort of on and off the same at the same time for a while, weren't you? Yes. There was, as I said, said to you earlier, with that's life and Esther Ransom, there was a, a the popularity of the comedy song and the topical song. It was was everywhere. You you actually could pick up work. And I did, did lots of sort of individual shows, but I had, in the 90s, I had long spells. I did two years at midnight on Radio 5 with a song for that week, and then there was a guest in the chat. And they wanted it to be a bit edgy and dangerous, so they provided a drinks trolley which was a bit foolish because most of the guests arrived from the pub or the clubs of London pissed already. So it it was a bit iffy. But I did two years of that, and then I did two years on Radio 2 with Brian Hayes, a bit of a legend in broadcasting, dealing with phone-ins. He was really tough with phone-in people. And I did a song at the end, about uh, midday, for two years. And then the man in charge of Radio 2 called me in and said, I don't know you, but I like what you're doing. What are you doing outside? And I said, well, I'm writing songs about my own and doing little shows about my lot, the baby boomers, post-war baby boomers getting older. I call it comedy for menopausal flower children. And he went, mm. oh, I like this. This is the age group I want. I want to create a radio tour around that age group, the baby boomer. And This is long up before you, but um, people, other people maybe <laughs> who have got a bit of age on watching this. Uh, Wogan, Terry Wogan, became the main man of this thrust of broadcasting on two and he had his togs tired old geezers and he you know he did all this baby boom stuff and the and the record selection was all 60s and early 70s so and then he said do you want to what do you want to do i said i want to do a sitcom he said okay he gave me three series so i did three series on radio two called love 40 new balls please and then I went across to Radio 4 and did another three series there, a similar thing, middle-aged person struggling, called Getting Nowhere Fast, which, Jamie, I've been alerted, is being repeated yet again on Radio 4 Extra, even as we speak that's amazing well it'll all be linked underneath this so if people are interested yeah tell them it's on now it should run into the festival so i'm letting my pr people know that you know i'll be on radio 4 extra with the sitcom during the festival as well so i I mean those things are really good and again like i talked about the song and seeing people coming mds coming in and choreographers coming in and actors singing when you write for actors it isn't about good lines for you to say on stage you've got You're creating lines and then the actors take these lines, which you think are funny, and they make them funnier. And I used to stand at the back of the stage and and watch some of the actors and I laughed at my own work. Isn't that terrible? But they were doing it. They were doing it so well. And it's a joy. It's such a joy to write for people who can act properly and do it. I had in there, I had John Chalice, who was Boise in Fools and Horses. Oh, yeah. Remember him? And Tracy ann Oberman, who was Chrissy, I think. She's famous for being Chrissy in EastEnders and killing off Dirty Den. But she's done amazing theatre work since. I mean, she is sensational. And she played my young South African. And the young boy, the nerdy computer geeky boy in it, was played by an actor called Martin Freeman. Wow. What on on earth happened to him? Who's who's that again? Who's that (laughs)
0: bloke?
1: I killed his career quite clearly.
0: <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, it's amazing just hearing you sort of reminisce on all this stuff, like different things again. Like, I mean, what I've found on this podcast is, and we've had so many different people from different age groups and different career paths. There's no right path, and often a lot of the time in this industry, you sort of just fall between different things, and it, it all kind of can work out quite amazingly. And it's just lovely to sort of hear you talk about it. To sort of go onto the fringe, which is I ama- mean, I mean, incredible achievement to be approaching the 30th anniversary of this show as well. But, like, you know, how are you feeling ahead of it? Are
1: you excited to get back up in August? Well, how I'm feeling is that I've got a lot of press and I'm answering Q&As and doing podcasts and I'm writing lots and lots of experiences in different ways and mm. sometimes completely different bits of information from the history pop up, which is great. And I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, okay. Now, what about when I get there and have to climb onto a stage? Have I thought about that bit yet? No. Yeah. So I'm gonna to have to um, you know get all the PR done in the next few days and then start right. thinking about you know what shall I deliver on stage. I've got a nice Johnson song and a little Trump song yeah, I do a couple of songs at the front really, with a bit of hello and welcome. Uh, sometimes no songs at all. depends how the day is. Yeah, and if you've got a big show and they they say, well, can we do more than five? You know, can we do sort of seven or eight? And yeah, you, you say, well, okay, I'll give over some of my time because I I want to see you, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So it's exciting. It's going to be great. It's going to be hopefully, but it's a number of things going on. You've got the thirtieth of what I'm doing, but you've also got the second version of post COVID. Yeah. Last year was yeah, it was there. You might call it a bit tentative. I agree. It wasn't yeah, quite yeah, a yeah. full blood festival yeah i'm expecting this to be much more of a full-blood festival i mean there there won't be so many people coming in from abroad because we voted brexit and the paperwork is just bloody ridiculous you know the same is true for our artists traveling abroad it's an absolute i mean elton john is now fronting it to the government to say this is an absolute cock up. get it sorted and it is i mean here we are one of the world's leading arts nations and our, our bands, theatre companies, orchestras can't tour easily because of the paperwork involved through Brexit. Yeah. And equally, people coming in is a problem. So no, anyway, we shall see. Hopefully, there are lots of foreign pe- people coming in with their wonderful talents and skills. You know. Yeah, I completely agree. Hopefully, as well. I mean, there's so much to ask for in the fringe. And
0: I mean, I lived in Edinburgh for nine years. I'm from Fife in Scotland. I now live in Glasgow, but like I. Obviously, as a Scottish person, I love The Fringe. We did a show there for the podcast last year, but just to, to quickly sort of
1: hmm.
0: about the show is what, well, like, I mean, are you, is it quite emotional, the run up to it? The, the sort of 30th anniversary in it? Are you feeling a bit emotional about it, like sort of reflecting on it
1: almost? It must be quite an amazing. Yeah. Uh, every year, people say, oh, Are you excited? i excited. I always say, when I get up there and start feeling the atmosphere, that's when the excitement really starts. Because... I sort of know what the show is like. I can't say how many people will turn up. I don't know all. I can see some of the talents already. And you go, this is looking a good festival. When it really hits me and I get excited, is usually sitting in the auditorium at the tech. We've done the morning meeting, two hours of, you know, what did you see? How was it? What are you planning to see? Because I have a team of researchers for people who don't know. Mm -hmm. So I do a quality control of what's on. It is a question of people turning up and saying, oh, give us a gig, Murph. It's not that. We have people going out and finding the best things and inviting them on. So there's a lot of admin, a lot of efficient work needs to be done. But anyway, we wind up down there. So it'll be about 11.15 this year. And the companies will arrive. And then they'll tack in with my crew down there, Pleasance One. And I scribble down notes of how to introduce them and pick up questions afterwards because after they've done their five minutes or so I come back on stage and have a quick interview with them so they can add things like oh the stage we're playing in a studio that holds only 50 there's 300 people in front of me right now so we all have to say okay it's going to be a much more intimate affair or I've got a bank of tv screens and there's videos they can actually sell all I've got a huge set you know they can sell everything they want to sell with words now Um, and so i'm scribbling notes to ask the right questions and then i'm watching people on stage and i'm going oh these mm. people are good oh I'm, I'm glad they're you know mm. and it's really that's when the excitement starts mm. look at these people we're going to show the audience today mm. fantastic it's amazing I, to be a facilitator of that must be amazing oh, it is, fav- amazing. It is favorite, amazing yeah uh, it's a and i stand in the wings and watch I mean, in the old days, when I wasn't in the Pleasance One, I used to sit in the audience with a desk yeah. and then run onto stage and run back again. And people would sit around me and they could sort of peer at my notes or watching them. And it was fine. People said, And you'd chat to the audience and there'd be regulars. And I liked being in with the people watching. And I could see how it was looking on stage and, and mm-hmm. I was getting what they were getting. I now get it, of course, from the wing and it's sideways. But it's enough. And that's how it works there. I can't run back and forth in Pleasance One. It doesn't work. But I will be watching and then I might scribble a quick note or oh, I must ask him about that. That's good. So, yeah, it gets it gets exciting every day. Yeah. You know? Do you want to sort of remind us the dates and things just so people just to plug it in? Yeah, we in start now. on Saturday the 5th, Saturday the 5th, and we go through to the 26th. And on mm-hmm. the 26th, I give Spirit of the Fringe Awards. I'll nice. tell you a bit more about that in a minute. I've done so every, every year since 1992. Basically, it's a show every day. It's 90 minutes every day at lunchtime, and it's 12.40 to 2.10. Lunchtime has been the the popular slot. When I started, there wasn't much on at lunchtime, so artists and acts were free. Now there's plenty on all day, but it's still the best time to do it because then people can go out and even with their pre-book planner on their phones, they can go. Oh, we could we could see that tonight. I mean, the old days they used to come out. There was no pre-book, no internet, and they'd say, "Oh, that." And giving because we give flyers for yeah. the seven they've seen, and they'd be like, "Yeah, we can see that tonight." And people would be totally spontaneous. A show would appear on mine, and it would be playing to like two Norwegians and a dog, and then th- that night it could have fifty or sixty people in. We had a Down Syndrome company play in 1992. They did a silent movie sequence, the classic kind of boy woo's girl on a bench, you know, all the kind of the chaplain heart flutter and the hat and the rose and the... Mm. paint six people that night, 100. Which is fantastic. You know, you can change people's Edinburgh's. Yeah, which is amazing. They can have a much better Edinburgh. Sometimes that means they have a much better year ahead. Sometimes it means they get a better career because everything builds and builds and builds. Yeah. You know? And Spirits of the Fringe Awards, Jamie, yes, yeah. on the on the Saturday, fantastic. 26. It was, back in the day, it was much more chaotic. I did like the old days of Fringe. <laughs> it was larky and chaotic and loose and, and, frankly, more fun in the sort of nonsense that used to go on. But people would have catastrophes. They don't now. They're very much more professional. But there used to be people who had, you know, things would happen. They'd lose the set or, you know, something would happen. And we would then award them a, a spirit of the fringe Award for, for coping and succeeding. The rules right. were very clear. Now it's still that, but it isn't based on catastrophes as a major problem. It's about people who show genuine feeling for the originality of, of, of the fringe. And so we give seven of those every year on the final day. And the final day this year is saturday the 26th so it's going to be a it's always a top quality show to go out on and uh, so i'm looking forward to that one as well that's incredible it's really exciting well i I want to ask you this actually because
0: you'll be a very qualified person to ask this but what does the fringe mean to you why was the fringe invented and has that changed now because it has become a little bit more difficult for performers and it feels i know a lot of people say this every year but like it's become more about the money and not about what it was originally set up to be so Yes. So explain that a little bit, if that question makes sense?
1: The Fringe started, well, I wasn't there, by uh, bunches of actors turning up and getting a room. There was a festival post-war. Again, it was the Edinburgh Festival proper, was about the arts connecting across Europe in a broken Europe, and not at peace with itself, perhaps, and using the arts to heal and to connect and bond again. And so that was happening. And um, you know, big orchestras and theatre companies exchanged. And so, you know, random actors say, Oh, well, we've got we'll you know, be on the edge of it, we'll be in the fringe, you yeah. know. So it started like that. And it grew from that. I mean, the first fringe, I think you could get on an A4 sheet of type paper. And uh, it carried on like that. It too evolved like the fringe, and a thing called the fringe society started, and that too evolved. And people are not sure what it's for now because it's doing stuff that they don't quite understand because most performers think the fringe society should be a facilitator of of getting a show on a helper and sell tickets what else that you know there might be some extra little bits about mental health now and stuff maybe supports and things but it it seems to have turned itself into a bit of a corporate project Mm. and it's got as you said money it's I always think it's more it is that and it's quite it's quite a corporate thing. I mean the venues themselves have grown and they have to survive and they do good things. But if if the child outgrew the parent, the fringe outgrew the festival, now we've got the free fringe of the fringe, which is basically tapping into the same energy from back in 47, 48. So you can still get your fringiness. Yeah.
0: That's well, that's what we did the podcast live show yeah. for. We do we do it for the PBH free fringe because like, I mean it this is i do this outside of work like and i love doing this but i'm not I just, it doesn't make enough money for me to justify putting on a proper live mm. show etc and that is an amazing thing but it is a shame that it's become so hard for performers to even afford to stay in. end but the accommodation crisis is
1: crazy and i have yeah. no idea what you do with that jamie i'm not clever or political enough for that <laughs> you've got to how do you tell landlords excuse me but you're killing the fringe mm. now i know a good chunk of comedians have said, oh, I can't be bothered this year. I'm not paying all that money. And so they're not turning up. It could be that more and more people stay away if the, yeah. if the rents don't stabilise or come down. But I don't now. That's something the Fringe Society should be really extremely proactive. And I, I haven't seen anything in the press. I haven't heard any news. So I don't want to prejudge, but hopefully they're on it and trying to do something because yeah. rents are extraordinary. People are charging stupid money. Yeah. because they know they can yeah, and it does yeah. what it. it is like your comment earlier to do with universities and training of actors it's it's people with you know from maybe rich families uh, they're the ones that can afford to put the money up and if you're screaming more diversity more you know all the rest, of it, class diversity, race diversity. whatever you're looking at that in more diversity? Well, the only way that's going to happen is it becomes more affordable. Therefore, it's it's a more of an open playing field to everybody. Yeah, and that's not to do with what your home life is like,
0: you know. Yeah, it's it's really tough as well. I mean, again, this seems to be the problem in the arts in general. Is but it becomes an unlevel playing field because of the yeah. money involved, and a lot of people go to the fringe and that launches their career, you know. A lot of Scottish acts can't even play in their own city or their own country, which isn't in, insane. Like you know I mean, there's a lot of, of people that are from it. I mean I lived there for nine years, and like I know so many Scots that can't actually get on at the fringe doing a proper mm. and making up because they can't afford it, that also feels kind of you know, again, it's not what it was meant to be about when when what you were talking about. No, earlier.
1: there is a useful platform in, in its more professional, perhaps more corporate sense. You know, another phrase people use is it's turned into a trade fair. Well, if you're looking to get a foothold in the industry, then perhaps a trade fair is not such a bad thing. Certainly comedians know that if they do well, they might get on the telly. But if you look at people who will never get on the telly, I mean, one of the questions I get asked is, oh, you know, what, you know, what sort of names have you had on the fringe, famous names? And I'm going, no, I'm not going to answer that because actually you're saying comedians because they're the only famous names. Because how do you, how does a theatre company that's really good and has a successful festival going to be in people's living rooms? They're not going to be on Mockner Week, you know. So it's very difficult to set separate off. Oh, here are the famous comedians. I can tell you some. I mean, I've had wonderful comedians on. I've had wonderful theatre companies, dance companies, brilliant cabaret acts. You know, mm. but you'll never get. They'll never appear in the living rooms of Britain. You know. Yeah. No. It's it's, it's but it's a such trade compl- fair is good. Any platform that helps people get on in the industry has to be good. But it, but you really need access for all, which is a which is how the fringe was. If you could turn up, get a room. And you sold your own tickets in the early days, you see. Now, that might be a thing, but it's all... Because it's all on computer now, anyway, and the venues are linked, yeah. so maybe you don't need the fringe office to sell tickets. You know, maybe you can do it all on the, the linked-up venues, and I think or that's if you're kind in a free of... fringe, have your own tickets and yeah. take all, and you don't have to give a percentage to anybody.
0: Yeah, it's it's very it's a very complex issue. And I appreciate as you said, you're not a politician either, and I'm you know, I, but I appreciate your insights and sort of own personal experiences. There's so much more I can ask you, and I know we've not got loads and loads of time, so I'll sort of try to, to get for the rest of my question. I mean, I could speak to you about this all night, and you've done. So much is incredible. Um, A long time, thirty five years. I suppose suppose a good question is for anyone listening that might be taking a show to the fringe: like, what have you learned most from doing it, and and how do you cope with it? Like, it's a tiring thing, especially performing every day. The the coping with it,
1: if you're winning, the coping with it is fine. You know, if you're getting good houses and people are taking the flyers and there's an energy. In a way, it's an intense microcosm of show business because if you've got failure, you've got to deal with failure. Or if you're not winning and you think it's a good show, uh, that's very dispiriting. But then, you know, if you think you're a good actor and you get rejected time and again at auditions, it's the same situation. But in the acting situation, you're at home. You can go down the pub with your pals or whatever. But in Edinburgh, you might be there on your own if you're a solo actor. I mean, theatre companies can sort of go and Trying the beer together, or maybe, but on your own. And this is why mental health issues have bubbled up. A lot of people um, struggle because they're losing money as well. Yeah. You know, they probably beg, borrows, not stolen, but you know, there's a good old overdraft involved. Yeah. And and they can see thousands and thousands of pounds not being made back at the box office. So coping is is a tricky one. And I I don't know. That I think there's a lot of help for um, people who are um, unhappy. have mental health issues during the festival so it that is there and go to the fringe clubs and go to the the parties and you know mix and say hello to people and meet and you know cry together you know get a camaraderie in the um isn't it's rough isn't it yeah it is and you know go and see each other's shows and be constructive and helpful and i mean that's another thing a lot of friendships are made in, in the fringe which is great
0: yeah Hundred percent. No, it's really is such it's such a unique thing. It's 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 an amazing mum. The first time nine years since I won't be living in Edinburgh now, which is so strange to me. I I will, will be going through from Glasgow. But it will be so odd. I mean, obviously we had COVID when it wasn't on, but like it, I almost feel a bit left out. Not the fact that I won't be living there.
1: It's weird. Well, a little like you won't be. I, I, yeah. I understand a lot of people are now renting rooms in Glasgow and yeah. coming in to do their show. Yeah, well, I mean, so I, there'll I be a little a little bubble bubble of fringe participants
0: Yeah, living true. near you that's very true, I mean it's a very quick train, I would recommend people do it, it might yeah. save them a fortune
1: Just get a real
0: there's so much more I can ask you as I was saying but one question, we were speaking about failure there Mervyn, and I wanted to ask you in your, whole, in your it's esteemed long career what's the sort of biggest failure you'd experienced and, and what have you learned from that? the biggest
1: hurdle? biggest failure um, oh. and, what, and, and what have you learned from it? i've had no failures I everything's gone swimmingly uh biggest failure i've got, i don't know i've had a, a huge failure. you know i've had rejections from jobs but that's not a huge failure i think for me i've kind of planned against big failures because i as we've sort of covered already i did acting i can sing i can write songs i can write scripts i can direct you know i direct comedy really, and so. I used to, people talk to me about showbiz, and I say, well, it went, went in a quicksand spread wide and and I've spread wide. And so there was always something I could go and earn a few bob ads. Somebody said to me, what sort of part-time job? I was yeah, I was doing a show and the and the actor said, Oh, back on Monday, back to the part-time job. What about you? And I went, What? Oh no, I've never had a I've never had another job. So I've never had to have part-time jobs. I've had spells where there haven't been any work, but it's never been long enough to say, oh, I really must go and work in a factory or go and work in a solicitor's office or whatever. So um, I've always sort of, well, I'll put a guitar around my neck and go and do a show or two and sing sing songs, which is what I do now outside of Edinburgh Festival. I'm of, of a lovely age where I go to English village halls and <laughs> perform on a Saturday or Friday night and my age group turn up which is wonderful,
0: because it means I
1: can make casual references to things in the 1950s, and they get it, whereas Mm -hmm. I'd have to explain everything to somebody like yourself. (laughs) Not that you'd turn up to see me, because you'd go, that's not for me, and you'd be right. (laughs) Some of it would be, though. (laughs) Yes, so spread wide. I I, I think learn, always go to courses, learn skills, uh, give yourself width. So that mm-hmm. if you don't have just I'm an actor and I'm out of work, you know, may- maybe there's other things you could earn in the arts earn a living yeah. or get, you know,
0: get by. I suppose that kind of answers one of my next questions, which you always ask, is, what's the worst part time job you would ever had to work? But you just answered it. You've been very fortunate. You'd always made it. No, I've yeah. never had
1: a part time job. didn't yeah. need to. I mean, I did branch out and work uh, in a college teaching comedy and stuff, but that came up and I just took it and thought, oh, and then we'll see what happens afterwards. But you, know, you take everything because it's always an interesting experience, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, just sort of two more questions very quickly. I know you, your wife was on the phone and you, you need to get out later. <laughs> yes.
1: But uh, what are you most proud of in this amazing career you dad? Staying in work, um, having a really nice house now. My wife is extremely good at interior design <laughs> and she loves property. And so we've bought and done up and bought again and done up and bought again and done up. And we've now got a really fantastic house. And you don't have to earn fortunes to create a nice building to live in and have a f- fun, enjoyable life. And um, I've always felt that I have staved off a lot of illness by being happy in my work, <laughs> not earning fortunes. Perhaps that's the biggest failure. But then it isn't in the sense that I've earned enough to get to get a life, you know you know that's a fantastic answer because that's what this is the
0: arts are all about and you're you love what you do you have a comfortable enough life by the sounds of it that, that's an
1: incredible answer and i'm very yeah. glad to hear i'm very glad to hear that you're happy and that yay <laughs> but, yes i'm um, not saying i'm not without issues i've got i'm, I'm yeah. just getting another new hip in the <laughs> autumn yeah yeah I've, I've got one new hip and i'm getting another one and, and what's the other thing i'm having done oh yes i've got a little problem with the hand which is gonna but i'm not diseased do you see what i mean it's not like Diseases which are these yeah. are structural. This is just scaffolding that's not working too well. <laughs> and You can deal with scaffolding, you know. It's a great way to look
0: at it. Well, just a closing question for you, Mervyn, is like, what, what's your advice to anyone that wants to work in this
1: wonderful industry that we are both blessed to be in? Wait a bit, there's no room because I'm not dead yet.
0: When I'm gone,
1: <laughs> there'll be a place for you. Now, uh, do you have a be develop a thick skin to rejection, trust your own talents. Spread wide, as I've said, that yeah, you know, that may not be necessary for some, but it's it is a peaceful useful advice for me. It works for me. What else have we got? Oh, but yeah, just have a passion for what you're doing. It, and and if you're a fame seeker only, well, following your dream is a lovely phrase. You hear it all the time from young people, but you know, the world is a pyramid and there's only room at the top for a few. You can follow your dream, but you might get stuck. And so try and work out how to not just be desperately seeking fame. But have a good life with a a reasonable career. There's nothing wrong with that. No, nothing wrong with it at all. I mean, there's there's many more options for becoming famous, aren't there? There Jamie, as you know, with podcasts and things. You can, can, and people, influencers, maybe I should become an influencer and add that to my repertoire. An Mm. over 70s influencer, which is ridiculous. (laughs) I I mean, people do the stupidest things and get 15 million viewers and then in comes the money and you're thinking, really? So I can't blame the careers officers giving up at school going, they ought to be influencers. Of course they do. The thing is though, what you just said is like,
0: you're happy and a lot of people that become famous aren't happy because they're actually not doing what they wanted to do. They're doing what they yeah. think they should be doing. So, I mean, that's a lovely answer. Mervyn, it's, it's been a joy speaking to you. It's very and inspiring you, for me to hear about your career. How did you find your first podcast? What did you think? I I
1: I found it by chance because <laughs> I, I it, it wouldn't let me connect to start with that, to go around <laughs> twice to get to you. And uh, I still got sound issues. Hey, what did you say, young man? I, I mean, you're, you're very quiet, but... Uh, but you speak beautifully, so I've, I've been able to hear everything you said, really. and we got through it, didn't
0: we? It was all right. It was amazing. No, thank you so much for your time. Well, there we go. That was episode 106 of Just Get A Real Job podcast with... The brilliant Mervyn Stutter, thank you very much again to him for his time. Be sure to go and see Pick of the Friends this year. And also, some of Mervyn's sitcom, Getting Nowhere Fast, is being repeated on BBC Radio 4 this week as well. So that's all available to listen to online. There is a link to that under the show notes as well. Now, I'm going to make an announcement. And this is just for the OG fans that have stuck right to the end. I'll announce this officially on next week's podcast. Because I realised we mentioned it in the edit and I didn't mention it in the intros. But we're returning to the Edinburgh Fringe this year, which is very exciting. So we're going to be doing a PBH-free Fringe like we did last year. We had an amazing time last year. We did three brilliant shows that are all available to listen to. If you haven't heard them yet, go back and check them out. But this year we're playing on the 15th and the 22nd in the South Cider sideline at 8.15 and I'm not going to announce the guests right now because I'm still waiting on a few tiny things being confirmed but I'll make a proper announcement next week but we've got two live shows it's going to be amazing you just turn up you don't have to pay for them we'll be doing a bucket at the end but you don't have to pay if you don't want to yeah I hope as many of you can make it as possible it's going to be great there you go a wee teaser for the OG listeners that have stuck with me Till the very end of this week's episode Yeah, that's everything I hope you have a lovely week Thank you for listening to this week's episode And until next week, have a good one
1: Just get a real job